0: Welcome to the Informed Life. In each episode of this show, we find out how people organize information to get things done. I am your host, Jorge Arango. My guest today is Peter Morville. Peter is a pioneer in the discipline of information architecture. Among many other distinctions, he co-authored with Lou Rosenfeld, Information Architecture for the World Wide Web the classic O'Reilly polar bear book on the subject. This is Peter's second appearance on the Informed Life podcast. I asked him back because I wanted to learn more about his recent call for practitioners to emancipate information architecture. Before we start, I must apologize for the audio quality of this episode. There was a technical problem with my side of the recording. Hopefully you won't find it too distracting. In any case, I hope you enjoy our conversation. And now, Peter Morville. Peter, welcome to the show.
1: Hello there. I'm very happy to be back.
0: Yeah, I usually start shows by asking um, guests to tell us about themselves. But you have the distinction of being the second repeat guest to the Informed Live podcast. The the first was our friend Lou Rosenfeld. And I think it's appropriate that as the two co-authors of the polar bear book, that you are two of the folks who I most want to hear from. And part of the reason that I wanted to talk with you again is when you were last in the show, you talked about what was next for you and i I actually have the transcript up here and i'm going to quote back to you what you said (laughs) you said that well i'm going to paraphrase first but you said that you had this not completely formed plan to buy some property and start an animal sanctuary to create a place that can be helpful to people and animals now i'm quoting and that comes from that deep questioning of what do i want to do with my remaining time here on planet earth and while i get a lot of intellectual satisfaction from consulting with big organizations i'm not sure if i look forward to the next 25 years or so that that's going to fulfill my need for a real sense of purpose and meaning
1: that sounds like me
0: yeah it does doesn't it And, and now you've written a blog post where you kind of update us on how that is going. And I'm looking forward to talking with you about that here on the show.
1: Yeah. The blog post uh, was called Emancipating Information Architecture. Freeing information architecture from the shackles I helped to forge so that we can use information architecture to free minds. That's the general gist. And, you know, on the, the sort of personal side, since we last talked, we have moved from Michigan to Virginia, which is the place that we're planning to buy property, but we're currently renting. So hopefully 2021 will be a, the year that we, we buy the property and get some goats and chickens to, to get started.
0: So I want to find out more about both of those, but why don't we start with this idea of emancipating information architecture? That's some pretty powerful language. What is uh, keeping information architecture abound?
1: So in the article, I take some credit or blame for that state of information architecture. And I think back on those early years in the 1990s, when Lou and I were working together to build our company, Argus Associates, and to evangelize this new practice of information architecture. And... I was driven by fear. I had spent a year unemployed, sort of, and not really knowing what I wanted to do and feeling lost in the world. And and then ambition, because I had now gotten a taste of entrepreneurship and felt strongly that there was something here with information architecture that I could grow into a career. But, you know, it was very dicey, right? We were paying the bills month to month early on. And so there was a values-based side to my passion for information architecture. I was incredibly excited about the potential of of the internet and then the World Wide Web to enable us humans to share information all around the world and to become smarter and better. And and so there, there was a techno utopian (laughs) side to my passion. But ultimately, I was trying to figure out how am I going to be able to live in this world? How am I going to be able to pay the bills? And so there was a very strong orientation towards situating information architecture in the business context, right? How do we make money doing information architecture? How do we turn it into a job, into a Field or discipline, and you know, really, the community that grew up around information architecture was predominantly people who are kind of figuring out how do I do this as part of my work, right, in a business context. There were people from nonprofits and education, and and there were folks who were more academic and were interested in the intellectual ideas. But it was you know, eighty percent plus were folks who are figuring out. How do we do this as part of our work? And so that really, I think, is where information architecture has been centered. If you look at most writing, most conferences, it's been centered in business.
0: What I'm hearing here is that what you're looking to emancipate information architecture from is being bound to these business contexts. Is that right?
1: Yeah, and I make the point in the article, it's not that information architecture isn't doing good in the business world and can't do more good. So it's not an abandonment of business at all. But I I think that there's so much potential for the ways that we think, the ways that we practice information architecture, particularly in the areas of language and classification Um, how we use language, how we define or design labels, how we structure and organize conceptual spaces. Those skills are so useful beyond business, whether we talk about social or political or environmental areas. I think that part of what is holding us back as people are archaic, words and structures, right? A kind of language and classification systems that we have inherited from the past that we're having a hard time getting getting beyond.
0: There are other fields that think about this stuff as well, right? And I'm I'm thinking of George Lakoff's book, Don't Think of an Elephant. I think that's the name of it, where he dives into this subject of labeling and distinctions in the realm of politics specifically. What is special about information architecture? What is different about information architecture that would make it a good agent for change in this realm?
1: Yeah, so as I was working on the article, George Lakoff came to mind. He's one of the few people out there that I know has engaged in these issues in really interesting ways and you know there are also other books that come from outside of our discipline sorting things out classification and its consequences comes to mind as a fascinating exploration of the impact of language and classification in in all sorts of contexts for instance in the kind of the hospital and nursing context so you know I, as i was writing this article i was not under the impression or trying to Portray the notion that that we have a monopoly on these ways of thinking. In fact, in the article, the examples that I provide one is focused on topics in and around sort of LGBTQ plus, you know, gender and sexuality, uh, and all of the labels and classification systems around that, and that work is being done by people who would never identify as information architects or don't even know our field exists so there's there's so much that we can learn from the work that people are doing out in the world but i think that the folks who have spent the last you know 10 20 years thinking about information architecture learning about information architecture have a skill set and a talent that could be used beyond business. And I'm really trying to get our community to kind of just at least question, am I practicing in the contexts where I can make the greatest impact given where I wanna see the world go in the future? And for some people, the answer might be yes. I am super passionate about helping to grow this business and this is what I wanna do. For other folks, they may say, I need to do this work in order to pay the bills in a business context, but maybe I could volunteer some time in evenings or weekends to help folks kind of work through issues around how do we present ourselves? How do we label and organize our information so that we might be better understood or so that we can make it a bigger impact.
0: When I hear you talk about the particular skills and talents of practicing information architects what came to my mind is that information architects put these ideas of classification and distinction making through language into action right like it's it's one thing to think about it in the abstract in theory but we are very much practitioners making things in the world right yep And as such, we are in a position to make these distinctions more palpable, perhaps, or more tangible.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. um, There's an interesting dance between the abstract and the tangible that that we do. You know, very often, whether as as kind of in-house practitioners or consultants, we're hired more for the tangible stuff that we do. Right? Most people are able to understand the tangible side of what we do. So it's very it's very often almost our own secret that the most important work that we do is pretty abstract and hard to explain. Right? It's like, you know, as a consultant, I go into an organization and I immerse myself in in their world, in their language and classification systems in their domain, you know, their area of expertise, their content, as well as all their challenges and goals and so forth. And, you know, I I always go through this journey of initial excitement, then feeling completely overwhelmed, right? Like, oh my goodness, there's so much here. It's such a mess. How can I ever make a difference? And with experience, I've built up the confidence to know I will get to the other side and I will start to come up with some models, right? And hopefully some elegant models of how can we move forward? And the highest level of those models are are sufficiently abstract that very few people appreciate them. It's when you take them to the the next level and they start to become tangible and you can sort of see them. You've got a diagram or a wireframe or sketch and people kind of get it and you start to get people behind this shared vision. So I think you're right in the sense that we have that experience of grappling with the abstract stuff that's really hard to even talk about, and then moving it into some tangible artifacts, which then eventually move it into the world, right? And it becomes the digital place, right? It's it's a website, it's a software application, uh, you know, or in the physical world, right? It's how the grocery store is organized, it's how the airport is organized and the signage. And so- Whether you talk about digital or physical places, then those end results, they start to shape how people think, right? So that's the part that's interesting. We create environments that then shape people's perceptions, right? I mean, you go back to the Winston Churchill quote, if it was really him, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. That's very true, whether you're talking about buildings or digital places or classification systems. And once people get used to a certain structure, it's hard to kind of shift. It's hard to kind of get people to think differently. And that's the challenge I think is interesting, but it's different in every domain. Is a website gonna help make this shift or a book or do people need to be teaching this in elementary school, right? Where are the levers for affecting change in people's minds?
0: There's a distinction between molding information structures, structuring them, giving them shape, and spotting patterns in the ways people use these systems that result in emergent structure. And I realize that sounds a little abstract, so I'll give you an example. <laughs> The hashtag emerged in the use of Twitter. It's not something that was designed into Twitter from the get-go. And I am noticing in the world such structures coming into being. And I'll give you an example. And this one is related to what you wrote about in the article. And I'm hoping that we will get into this. But I've started seeing more and more people appending to their name on social networks a description of the pronouns that they want to be described with. Uh, You'll usually see a parenthesis, you know, the name, and then parenthesis, he slash him, right? And there's no space in that information system for you to describe your preferred pronouns. So the users have kind of hacked the system by appending it to their, I don't know if their last name field or what have you. And... That came to mind as I was reading your article, because you did get into the, I think you called it the architecture of identity, Yeah. that we do seem to be living in a time where that is becoming more and more of an issue for folks. And I'm wondering what our role is as information architects with regards to these top-down versus bottom-up spotting of these patterns and enabling their use in our systems.
1: Yeah. I love that example. And I think, yeah, there's a couple different directions to go there. So one, I think that that notion of identifying patterns and then deciding whether or not to try to spread them, to embed them in infrastructure or to squash them, right? That is something that, I think we we should be more aware of our potential to play a role there. You know, when we talk about information architecture, it's easy to think about that we are the creators of structure, that it has to come out of our heads. But, you know, as the Twitter hashtag idea suggests, right, many of the best innovations come from a user, right? One person who sort of has an idea and tries it out, and then other people see it and copy it, and it starts to spread. And then there's an interesting point there where, you know, in that case, the team at Twitter had to decide, do we embrace this and embed it in infrastructure? Does the hashtag become part of Twitter? And they decided yes, right? The issues around pronouns are, are so tricky. They're difficult. So, you know, I guess I'll I'll make a confession that there have been times where I've been irritated by this kind of injecting pronouns into various contexts, right? So like I was at a a meeting a couple of years ago. The purpose of the meeting was really to focus on helping undocumented immigrants in Michigan, but it was hosted at the university of Michigan. And at a certain point, we, we, we were all asked to introduce ourselves and to introduce our pronouns. And at an introductory meeting where we didn't even know if we were ever going to see any of these people again, it seemed like that, you know, was kind of forced into the conversation. And when I experienced that irritation, number one, I tried to moderate it like, you know, hey, there's a plus here, right? We're really trying to make sure that as we're talking to one another and referring to one another, we're using the right words, right? We're using the words that people are comfortable with as their identification, but I also try to grow a little compassion for the people who are on the other side, right? The folks who have very little tolerance for LGBTQ plus folks. Because you know, the thing that's really interesting in here is I think that there's this little part of our brains that you know I'm sure there's a spectrum in terms of like how active this is across the, the population. But there's a little part of our brains that just gets annoyed at added complexity, right? Like, oh, now I've got to worry about whether I say, you know, he or she or they or theirs. My life's hard enough already. I'm just keeping my head above water. That just annoys me, right? And I think that little irritation may be the source of so much conflict and unnecessary suffering in our society. And and the flip side is, which for the most part is how I feel is I, I love difference, right? I, I am so bored by the sameness, right? Living in a world where there's people of all different sort of races and sexes and genders and, you know, people who have different customs and do things differently. Like I love that, right? But I have a brain that loves learning. And I also have the privilege of a certain level of stability in my life and a certain amount of confidence that I'm sort of ready for the next thing. Hey, I want to learn something new. Tell me more about what it means to be trans, right? Like that's a new wrinkle. Tell me about that. I'm interested. But I think that little kind of irritation, right, is something that probably would be good for us all to be mindful of. Like we all probably feel that at different points about different issues.
0: I can relate to that, Peter. And I'm also thinking again in the in the spirit of you use the word compassion to try to empathize perhaps with folks who might be irritated by this. You use the word archaic to refer to the traditional words and structures. And again, that's a very strong word. It might be read as obsolete, <laughs> you know. And I imagine that there might be people for whom there's a counterargument there, which is these distinctions that you label archaic have served us for a long time what would you say to those folks
1: yeah that's a great point and i i agree it's a provocative word so to explain my perception why i use a word like that i am somebody who kind of lives in the future right like too much maybe for my own good I'm always thinking about what's next, where are things going, which is helpful for being an information architect and planning ahead, but has its costs. It takes me effort to live in the present a little more, right? To sort of be aware of what's going on today. How am I feeling to take time to enjoy just being alive? And I don't spend much time reflecting on the past. And I think to a certain degree, I miss out a lot on positive emotions like nostalgia right kind of looking back at how things were and you know i i think i miss out a little there but my current mental models you know my my sort of sense of trajectories and where things are going is that human civilization is really kind of approaching a very dangerous moment we are in a very dangerous moment where we are not only causing incredible destruction to other species and to the environment, but we're doing it to the extent that we're on the verge of destroying ourselves. And so at a a time where I see this crisis, like we're in it and it's getting worse, I feel that we need to be more progressive, right? We need to move faster the structures that have served as well served as well in a different world in a past world that's not coming back and so I think that we need to be more open to change to embrace change and I say that knowing especially just based on how you phrased that question that that's really scary to a lot of people and very difficult for a lot of people and I I'm not sure what the answer is to that other than, to me, in order to deal with change, especially rapid or dramatic change, what's needed is great leadership. It's times like these where we need great leaders. And at the moment, at least in this country, we don't have that. And so we're all feeling lost. We're struggling. We're seeing parts of this crisis unfolding. We probably all see it differently, but what's needed From great leadership is the ability to say, hey, like we have to, you know, move from A to B, whether that's physically moving from an island to a mainland location, whether it's moving from the use of fossil fuels to renewable energy. A great leader can get people to think in a more positive way about the challenges ahead, to recognize, oh, this is going to be hard, but we can actually do something valuable and meaningful with our lives we can be the generation that made this change that sacrificed for future generations and to sort of view it less with fear and more with a sense of adventure and curiosity and you know I'm hopeful that at some point in the fairly near future we will get that kind of leadership because I think that we can make tremendous progress I mean you know you and i in our careers right we have been part of the internet revolution and you know we know that one thing humans are good at is technology right at like being incredibly innovative and moving really fast and doing things that were previously viewed as impossible we just need great leadership to harness that in the right direction
0: for context we are recording this before the US election <laughs> I'm saying that because we don't know what's going to happen and people might be tuning in after the fact, right? But I want to call out that this brings us back full circle to where we started the conversation. You, um, you mentioned the fear you had when you were starting out at Argus and we've come full circle back to fear mm-hmm. and I wanted to bring things to a close by asking you about what's making you hopeful today you are now in a different modality from the last time that we spoke you have started your sanctuary or are in the process of starting your sanctuary and i'm wondering how you are vis-a-vis how you were at the time of the founding of Argus. yeah
1: I think that one difference is that, you know, I'm, I'm sort of on the other side of my career, right? Like with Argus, you know, I had no real savings. So I was living month to month, right? You know, paying my rent with my paycheck. And so my fear was very focused on job and career and how I, how I made money. I didn't really have time or emotional space to think about all the other things that could go wrong i wasn't worried about getting sick i just that that couldn't happen i couldn't get sick you know now that i have a little more financial security and i'm older i'm more aware of a much wider array of things that can go wrong (laughs) I've, i've had an extra 25 years of having things go wrong and that's where for me you know, learning about Buddhist philosophy, listening to tapes from Pema Chodron, really kind of trying to be more at peace in a world and in a body where so much can go wrong and will go wrong, right? Like things get better and then they get worse and then they get better and then they get worse. And that's life. We can't control those ups and downs all that much. So with sentient sanctuary, with this vision I have to, to create an animal sanctuary, it's exciting for me and fun for me to imagine it and to begin to, to work towards it. But I'm not attached in a kind of a negative way to its fruition, right? I'm not, you know, if I die tomorrow, it's okay. (laughs) Like I've had a great life. I've been really fortunate and I think that there's a danger with visions, with plans, with hope that we sort of cling to an outcome. And I, you know, 25 years ago, I, that was much more me. <laughs> I've got to make this work. It has to work. And now I'm more comfortable with saying, you know, I I can put in my best effort, you know, when I trained for the Detroit Marathon, right, that was very humbling in the sense that you spend six months working as hard as you've ever worked for something. And every day, you know, one wrong step and you twist your ankle and your dream is done. And you've got to have a bit of sense of humor about that. Right? <laughs> Otherwise it'll, it'll destroy you. And so that, that's kind of where I am today. I, I wouldn't say I'm incredibly hopeful for the future of, of human civilization. I, I just don't know where we're headed. I feel really fortunate, you know, given the life that I've lived so far. Uh, and where I am right now. And I have, I have some fun, exciting things to work on for the future. I'm starting a new consulting project next week that I'm excited about. And I'm actively learning about how to raise chickens and goats. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's great stuff.
0: Words of wisdom, Peter. Thank you for sharing them with us. Where can folks follow up with you?
1: So my websites are semanticstudios.com and intertwingled.org. And I am Morville on Twitter.
0: Well, thank you so much. We look forward to hearing more from you as Sentient Sanctuary evolves. And best wishes with all that you have going on. Thank you. And thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. As always, you can find notes and a transcript for this episode at theinformed.life. And as a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please rate or review it in Apple's podcast directory. This helps other folks find it. Thanks.